So when he mentions the word prayer, we're going to talk about prayer. What are your first thoughts, your first feelings? Oh, goody? Or, oh no, guilt? Okay, beat me up again. Or, wow, I get to be lifted up. When you think about prayer, is it, is it really a life-giving idea? Or is it a life-sapping feeling? Are we operating here, uh, guys? I'm not. There we go. Thank you. This week, I, was, uh, I asked someone who I respect as a person who engages, God, who engages God well, whether the mention of prayer gave them a life-giving feeling or a life-sapping feeling. And there's a pause, and they said, that's a good question. Let me think about it. Well, you know what that means, right? You're never going to hear. <laughs> Later on that day, I got an email. It said this. And with permission, I'm reading it to you. For me, prayer has been life-giving when it refocuses me. When I turn from seeing myself and my circumstances, hardships, or blahness to seeing Jesus, His glory, and His love for me. Praying through the Psalms has been the best guide for me to change my focus. It aligns me with God and His purposes. I, I feel it has at times changed my whole outlook. I am uplifted and experience a life-giving strength. And then it went on. Prayer has also at times been life-sucking or sapping for me. At least the word has. It's usually when someone, often another Christian, tells me about an amazing technique or a group that prays together and experiences such amazing things, or perhaps another church or group of Christians in another country who are apparently experiencing great success, and they're attributing it to their particular method of prayer. I feel the underlying message is, if only you or we prayed that way, you or we would no longer have the hardships or struggles we have. I feel a sense of guilt and weariness because of my own failure in prayer. And it wrapped up by saying this, this doesn't actually increase or improve my practice of prayer. It often makes me feel like giving up. I would call this life sapping. Identify with that? I do. And some of us have come today assuming we're going to leave more burdened than we are built up. But base camp, a daily time. You guys, I don't think this is working. <laughs> is, there, is there a way to make this work? Base camp. A daily time set aside to intentionally, systematically engage God. A time centered around reading God's word and praying to refocus, refresh, recharge, replenish, renew, to reflect and regroup, to have a robust faith in and for real life. That's what base camp is to be. And so, you know what? I, I'm, I'm still not working here somehow. I'm not sure why. Um, if it's not life-giving, it is not worth doing. Seriously. If it's not life-giving, it's not worth doing. This morning, we want to hear from Jesus himself about life-giving prayer. Prayer that is... Sorry, folks. We've got to get this straightened out. Um, let's go back to marriage here context of marriage I want to talk about um, what our relationship with Jesus is to be about according to Ephesians chapter 5 which says that marriage 
is to be like God's Jesus' relationship to us. And our relationship should be to Jesus should be like good marriage. Thank you. Sorry about that. Um, when LaDonna and I had been married for 25 years, for the last 18 of those had been working hard in, in the place that we believe God had called us to, a church, and some amazing things happened. But it was tough. And with the church's blessing and support, after 18 years there, we, we agree, and, and we agreed on a plan with them, I took a three-month sabbatical. We, we began with a two-week vacation. Uh, the first time we were alone together for two weeks, first time together in a hot place. And LaDonna had a, a part-time, very part-time casual job as a cancer care nurse in a, a regional chemotherapy clinic. And although she was classified as casual, she was actually a core member of the team, more core than she realized, apparently. And so she had, she had negotiated with the boss to take an additional six weeks off after her vacation. And we were going to do some together, uh, just touring around Western North America, just experiencing different church environments and uh, seeing if we could figure out... Uh, uh, a bigger picture, and just just having some great time together, uh, looking at ministry stuff. And our two-week holiday was absolutely amazing. It was a great start. We got home to a message from LaDonna's work, the big boss. It said, please call me immediately. There's been a crisis. LaDonna called, and she was told, you know, there's been an emergency. Unless you accept a full-time position, starting immediately, we're going to have to shut down cancer care for the entire region. Now, we believe that not only was I called by God to my position, she was also called by God to use her gifts and training for God and for the good of the community. And so with a lot of regret, but with no real hesitation, we entered one of those, you just do what you got to do, periods. It was tough, not just during the sabbatical, but for the next 11 years. It was tough as her job kept getting bigger and bigger and more demanding to the point that she was doing two regional leadership jobs at one time, both of which were in growth mode. We couldn't even take the vacation that we were allotted, that she was, she was working such long hours. But we came up with this interim strategy. I said to her one day, you know, you can't take extended time off. I get that. But if something important came up, you could take off the occasional morning for two to three hours, couldn't you? She said, well, yeah, I guess. I said, okay, so why don't we maybe, you know, month to month, maybe once every two or three weeks, take two or three hours, book it off your, on your calendar, take two or three hours one morning together, and let's call it a mini vacation. We'll go for a walk in the bush. We'll maybe go to a coffee shop and read together for a while. Just be together, relax. And if we call it a vacation, maybe it'll help a little bit. She said we should try it. And so every once in a while, she would tell her staff, I won't be here until 10.30 or 11 tomorrow morning. Uh, I'm taking a mini vacation. They would laugh at her. And it got to the point where she wasn't working directly with her staff and was less visible. But after our time together enjoying each other, she would come into the building with a smile and more relaxed posture and someone would say to her, oh, looks like LaDonna's taken another one of her mini vacations. Wouldn't it be nice if that is what base camp, what prayer did for us? Would that not be life-giving? That's what it's supposed to be. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary, who are burdened, I'll give you rest. But it wasn't just a, a come once or just come. It's learn 
from me. And you will find rest for your souls. That's not just a one-time thing. It's not just a formal thing. It's in our dispensing machine world. We, we tend to hear that sort of in a transactional kind of way, don't we? I do this, Jesus gives that. Sort of like pouring something over us or into us. But, but Jesus came as, as Emmanuel, God with us, walking with us. And this is a relational invitation to, he calls us to be with him, to be with him in a way that helps us live from a posture of life-giving rest. You see, life-giving, empowering prayer that allows us to work from life-giving rest, not for rest, is what base camp is all about. Don't we spend a lot of our time working and working and working for rest? What about if we flip that and we're able, through many vacations with God, to be able to live from rest? Let's join Jesus with his core disciples. They've been with him for a while now. They've been watching him keenly. They've been listening fairly attentively. And they're seeing in Jesus something that is totally, well, really, out of this world. Oh, yeah, it was his teaching. It was his power, but, but it was something that was deeper than that, something a little more intrinsic. Every once in a while, especially after a few tough days, they would get up at the regular fisherman's hours, which was early, assuming that he'd be sleeping in because he wasn't a fisherman, and he's not around. And then they see him coming down the road from some remote place by himself, and they learned that he'd been praying. They also heard him praying. And what they heard was different from anything that they had ever experienced. You see, it was not as if these disciples never prayed. They prayed. They were devout Jews. Every single day, two times, they would recite the Shema. Hear, O Lord, or hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Twice a day. And 18 times during the day, they'd pause and recite a different, another different prayer. These guys prayed. And yet when they listened to Jesus, it was different. And one of them finally said, as we read in Luke chapter 11, Lord, you got to teach us now how you pray. You got to teach us to pray. That core prayer that Jesus taught is found in two different places in Luke chapter 11. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 6. Would you turn to Matthew chapter 6 in your Bible? Or if you have a Bible app, just uh, quickly download. Um, or if you have a smartphone, download the U version of the Bible from the website there. Turn to Matthew. It says Psalm 16. Shoot, cut and paste. Does it to you every time? Oh, well. Anyway, um, uh, Matthew chapter 6. It's, it's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a little bit more extended because there's an introduction to it that we need to hear. Matthew chapter 6, and let's, uh, let's just read, starting at verse uh, 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, 
They've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. So this, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When you pray, you see, Jesus is assuming that everyone, well, almost everyone at some point, prays. It's not just a matter of whether we're going to pray. Everyone prays, even if they don't live, as if they believe in God. They will occasionally just breathe a prayer to cover all the bases, right? Or like a man I met a number of years ago and got to know who claimed to be an atheist until he was in the delivery room at the birth of his first child. He was awestruck. And when he was handed his child, he felt this huge wave of gratitude, and, and he knew he needed to express it, so he blurted out to a, a huge thank you to the doctor. And then he began thinking, he said, well, this guy didn't really have much to do with this. And it led him on a journey that was a desire to pray to find the one to whom he really needed to be grateful. Today, he's an elder in a church. It's a great church. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Do not be like the pagans. As Jesus teaches them to pray, he, he first teaches them how not to pray. Teachers, how's that for a pedagogical model? Begin with a negative. Don't do this. Don't do that, right? Don't is not a life-giving word. Or is it? When you say to your child, don't cross the street without looking both ways. Is that life-giving? Do you have life-giving intentions? Absolutely. When Jesus, what Jesus is doing is he is correcting two wrong perceptions about prayer that come from wrong postures of the heart. Hearts that are not really open to the life-giving truth and love of Jesus. Hearts that have agendas of their own. Got to get off the table. Prayer that will not lead to rest and life-giving rest. This is, this is, by the way, this, these two knots are Jesus' simple answer to the question we always, or to the statement we always make. I prayed about it, and it did no good. Okay, anybody who's ever said that, listen to what Jesus says about prayer that is not life-giving. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. That word hypocritic comes from the word that means actor, posturing, poser. Hypocrites are people who claim to believe in God, follow God, but by the way they pray make you feel, well, first of all, they make you feel, oh my goodness, I could never be as eloquent as them. What does that mean their focus is if that's what you feel from them? It's on them. People who pray long prayers, but if, you, but if you pray together with them more than three times or hear them pray more than three times, it's like, oh my goodness, those are the same words they used last time. Maybe I should memorize those words. 
I did that as a young adult. I did. I, I wanted to be a person of prayer. And, and so I, I went to a Wednesday, Wednesday night prayer meeting. And with a group of men, we prayed. But you know what I did? I was learning to use their words. And I, I, I could do them pretty good. So I became a pastor. <laughs> Flowery words. Eloquent. They feel comforting because it's the same language I heard my grandmother use. Right? And what we begin to believe, what these prayers seem to lead us to believe, is that God answers the most impressive prayers. But what it really is, is self-righteous prayer. Now, I'm all for beautiful language. I'm all for poetic expression. I'm all for thoughtful prayers. I've, I've been moved by well-prepared, thoughtful prayer. For, the, for a period of a few months before we moved here to Edmonton, uh, LaDonna and I were attending a church whose theology we did not agree with, whose teaching was not top-notch, the music was not to our taste, but we kept going back because they had one man, a layperson, not a pastor, one man who almost always prayed a long public prayer that was powerful in words I could never hope to imitate, but it drew me into the presence of God. I'm all into that. But if that's what I think I have to imitate, I will not be authentic. I will be performing self-righteous coming across to others, convincing others that we have it all together. That's why he says, don't pray in public. Go to your closet. Because public prayer, not, not because public prayer is wrong, but public praying so easily becomes about performing for God and for others. But it wasn't just the words that makes these prayers not life-giving, and, and we'll see it when Jesus gets to the do. But but already we, we can see a positive implication of this negative, can't we? The life-giving truth of prayer. There's nothing wrong with praying long prayers in and of itself, but effective praying starts with two words. Simple and sincere. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus is, gives this story about this self-righteous Pharisee who has this long, flowery prayer, and we don't know what actually words he said, but the implication, the, the feeling he gave people, I'm not like that guy over here. I'm better than that. And then he says, the guy over here, who's a tax collector, all he said was, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Simple and sincere. That's the prayer Jesus commanded. Mark chapter 9. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's simple. That's sincere. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. And, verse 7, when you pray, do not keep babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard for their many words. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. What does it mean to pray like a pagan? Well, if we read this over several times, as, as we should, it's going to pop out at us. It, it, you'll see it right there. There's, there's, there's two simple words that tell us what he means. It says, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for, they think they'll be heard for their many words, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. You look through those, those, those two explanatory phrases, God knows what you need more than you do before you ask him. By the way, when is it we tend to pray? When we tend to come back to praying? When we have a problem we can't solve, when we have a dream we can't fulfill, when we are not getting out of life what we think we deserve, and so we go to God. 
Why is it we go to God? Because we love Him? Because we are amazed by Him? No. It's out of self-interest. Prayer that gets stuck in a self-interest vortex is not life-giving prayer. It's life-sapping. You ever get stuck in that self-interest vortex with God? I bump against this, this barrier or this gap, and so I pray. I tell God the right things. I butter him up saying the right words. Nothing happens. So I pray harder. I pray longer. I use a different formula. I get my whole body engaged in the right posture. I mean, it is intense, and it is life-sapping. What is, why does Jesus call this pagan prayer? Well, Pagans were not atheists. Pagans were religious. They had, God, they had many gods. A god of the mountains. Different, different geography needed different gods because they had to be experts over and they, had to, they just had to define territory. They had different gods for different life situations. A god of fertility. A different god in every situation and every setting that had to be appeased and if you could appease him, you could manipulate him. Gods that could be manipulated for my self-interest by appeasing, by being appeased. There's some secret button to press to get from God what I want. Bring enough food to an altar and you'll be safe. If I say the right words, use the right mantra, know the right formula, God will protect me, God will provide for me, God will pardon me. Ever slip into that kind of thinking? What do I have to do to get this from God? God will do anything, just give me this. That's the core of the self-interest vortex. And friends, let's get it on the table. That is why we often think about prayer as life-sapping, isn't it? But there's another thing that makes this prayer pagan because... What were pagan gods called? They're idols. Idols. An idol is anything I put above the real God that's more important than the real God. Anything I bow down to, submit to, that I allow to control me, including my own heart. So what is it when I come to God when, with self-interest at the leading edge of my heart? What is it when bless me prayer is the heart of my prayer? It's actually idolatry. Whoa. You see, in order to lead us into life-giving prayer, Jesus has to expose these two tendencies of our hearts. Why is it we pray? To show our spiritual superiority or to satisfy our self-interested hearts? It's not going to be life-giving. So what kind of prayer is authentic, life-giving, mini-vacation kind of praying? Well, let, let's be clear, as we read through the Lord's Prayer, it's easy to think of that as a, a, a ritual, a, a rote prayer to memorize and repeat. Jesus did not give us the Lord's Prayer to repeat like a ritual. It's not wrong to read it together at all. It's, it's good because it gets our heart focused on the right things. It can. But if it's just a ritual repeat, it's actually a pagan prayer, right? He's giving us a pattern to pray. And if you look at it carefully, this prayer simply has two parts. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Part two, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us as we forgive others. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Two things. You don't have to memorize and recite a whole prayer. You just have to remember and talk to God from a sincere heart about two things. I love that. I love that because, you know, when LaDonna calls me and says, hey, would you pick up such and such on the way home? She'll say this, this, and it gets to be a third thing. I say, hold it, hold it. Let me get a pen. Write it down. I can't remember more than two. I get into the store and I remember two, whatever. There's two things here. You don't have to remember more than two things. Thank you, Jesus. How do I encounter, how do I counter that tendency towards self-interested and self-righteous prayer? I begin by reflecting about the God who really is. The God who must be and in real life history has shown himself to be. He is the one who is on the throne. That's what heaven means here. In the worldview of the Bible, heaven is the throne room of God. There is a throne and that throne is occupied On that throne is the sovereign, the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the all-seeing, the pure and holy and perfectly righteous God. The God who has the right, the God who has the authority, the God who has the plan, and the God who has the will to pull that plan off. And on that throne, I have a father. Those two words, our father, are the most audacious audacious words in this whole prayer. The Jewish people were taught that, oh yes, God loved like a father and a mother. Yes, God was like a father to the Jewish nation, but no Jewish person would ever pray to God as father God's throne was shrouded in mystery. It was hidden in unapproachable light. One of the knocks against Jesus by the Jewish leaders was that he called God Father, His Father. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, you want to pray? It's not about approaching God as a tyrant to be appeased. It's about seeing the one on the throne as a Father who loves. Now that does not mean we approach God casually. Please don't hear that. It's about seeing the heart of the one who is on that throne that we approach. It's about bringing my heart to see the one that is on the throne is the Father who is already and always working for me, not against me. He's not just the Father who already knows what I need before I ask Him. He has the throne power to pull it off. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed. That's an interesting word, and it's even more interesting to me that some of the newer translations have come back to using this old word for that term. Hallowed. Hallowed. Some of the translations talk about making holy. Well, that's sort of right, but it, it sounds like he's not holy already, right? Some say, may your name be kept holy. 
almost sounds like it's to be kept out of real-life conversations and, and situations. The, the Holman Christian Standard Bible gets pretty close when it says, may your name be honored as holy. And, and that's accurate, but this, this is just one word. May your name be hallowed. What does it mean to hallow something? To hallow something means to value it as ultimate. The most important value, the supreme concern, superseding all other concerns in my heart. The ultimate beauty and the ultimate aim of life. Before we come to God with our interests, our needs, our concerns, it is so important to see Him as our ultimate interest. Relationship with Him as our primary need, our main concern. The thing we ask is, what is God doing in my life? He's, he's wanting to nudge us and say, no, 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 before you look at what's doing in my life, let's talk about me and who I want to be for you. And I think I know what's on Jesus' mind as he's teaching them to pray. He's thinking some, that someday you will realize how it is that, that, what did we say about God, four things, four Gs the other day? That the great and glorious God who that's the God who's on the throne that they love to have. Is also the good and gracious Father you are looking for. You're going to find out from me what it's going to take to put those two together. Hallowed, honored be your name. Oh, we so much want people to know our name, don't we? We want our name to be recognized by the announcements up front. We don't want our name to be on the credits. We want to be seen and known as somebody, right? Do, do you see what this aspect of prayer really is? This aspect of prayer is all about realignment. When anything is misaligned, it doesn't work. When two people are misaligned, you, you can't work together. If you're not on the same page, it's not going to work. Life-giving prayer is prayer that brings me, all of me, my heart, my plans, my commitments in total alignment, in realignment with God. That's, that's the first part of life-giving prayer. One of these followers of Jesus who was listening to Jesus teach us to pray was John. Let's move forward in John's life to see when Jesus is off the scene. John, the disciple closest to Jesus, who had been with Jesus when he disappeared into the heavens, who is now seeing the world around him becoming nothing like what he thought God's kingdom was supposed to look like. His Jewish faith had gone off track. He could see that. And he had entrusted himself to Jesus, who had suddenly disappeared with them into the skies and left, him in, left them in charge of his mission. Now, they'd experienced the empowering of the holy and presence of Jesus' Holy Spirit. And, and what happened? The Roman Empire just got bigger and larger and more powerful and was crushing the church, Jesus' body. And John himself, as a result of that, is exiled to a prison island in the Mediterranean. And John gets a window from Jesus into the throne room of heaven. He gets a picture of what it is Jesus wants us to see when we hallow, make ultimate in our minds and hearts, a Father who is in heaven. John sees the glory and the greatness of the throne, the majesty and the power, but what he sees is not just power, majesty, glory, and authority that can pull off what God the Father really wants, what his will really is, to woo us into his presence those who tend to put themselves above him and to walk away from him, 
And so God zooms the lens a little closer. In Revelation chapter 5, it says, Then I saw the Lamb. The Lamb. Jesus, the Lamb of God, looking as if it had been slain, killed, slaughtered, sacrificed. But it wasn't lying down. He was standing, very much alive, at the center of the throne. And all of the creatures around the throne are not weeping in sadness at the death of the Lamb. They are praising, hallowing the one who was worthy to open the seals. The seals that held what? The plan of God. And kept it from being fulfilled. The desire of God the Father is not to crush us. Nor is it to crush those against who seem to be against us. It is to help us to live in light of the Lamb who is on the throne. Who was crushed for us. And will keep us for himself. And help us to live his love in this world. Oh God in heaven, I want my heart to value you above all by seeing and living today in light of the greatness and glory of your throne and the goodness and grace of the Lamb who is on that throne. That's the intent of this first part. Realignment. Living at one with the God who really is. And when I see that God, when I see God in that way, my aim, my goal, my commitment to that God is, may your kingdom come. That's what I'm dreaming for. Lord, I do not come before you with my desires to rule, but with my heart wanting to live in and live under your fatherly kingship. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and the only slice of earth that I have any control over is my heart, my will, and every single request I make has to come under that one request. Like Jesus in the garden, Lord, this is what I want. But nevertheless, my will, or your will, not mine, be done. That's aligning prayer. We experience misalignment in all kinds of ways, don't we? But we tend to think misalignment has to do with the world around me not allowing me to fulfill my agenda and my desires. And we do and demand all kinds of things which in the end are not life-giving. They don't get to the core of the problem. There is misalignment. There is misalignment between my desires for authority over my life and God's desires to give me fullness of life in Him. Between my will and God's will to, be, to bring me true goodness from Him. So let's zoom in on that phrase, your will be done a little bit. Your will be done. Where is it we learn about and discover God's will? This is it right here. This is God's will. It's His Word. His Word is His will. That's why base camp prayer, your daily practice of prayer, needs to flow from a reading from God's Word. Listen to what Jesus says to His disciples in John 15. If you remain in me and my Word, my words remain in you, then your prayer is going to be life-giving, basically is what He said. God's Word is His will. What He made, it, what, what he made happen, what He wanted to happen out of that, what He made happen, how he's trying to redeem what did happen because of what we did that prevented what he wanted to happen. 
what he's still making happen, what he's wanting to happen, and what is going to happen someday because he said so. Life-giving prayer comes from understanding the will. So let's, let's just spend a few minutes looking at how aligning prayer flows out of this reading of, our, of the Word of God in our 10 to 15 minutes SOAP plan, right? Or uh, as we have it on our website, REAP. Uh, reap. Read, examine, apply, and pray. You've got to read it several times. Reading it once, you just gloss over it. You think, oh my goodness, where, where was I? I missed something there. You, you go back, read it again, read it at least three times. And then, after you read it, you say, okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to examine this. And when you examine it, you have to ask a couple of questions. What, what is it really saying? What does it mean? And when we, when we ask what does it mean, our tendency is to do the free association thing, right? Uh, oh, what, do I, what, do I, what am I caused to think about when I read this? No, 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 no. That's my self-interest imposing it on Scripture. We've we got to find out what it's saying. What, what is it really saying? And, and to do that, we need to ask questions like, okay, what's the context here? Just like in the Lord's Prayer, we, we had to look at it a little bit beforehand to see what it was that he was speaking into in order for us to understand the prayer. We got a, another thing. Uh, is there a key point in this that I, can, that I can put all of the other points under? Like, what, what is the key point? Another thing is, uh, are there some linking words? Like, like, as we were looking at the first few verses of this section, that word for was a linking word that helped us to understand what Jesus is saying about praying. See, those are just some of the questions. Once we've spent few minutes just looking at some of those questions. They're, they're, they'll, they'll come intuitive to us over time. Then we can talk about how to apply this. And if this is God's will, His self-revelation, there are three applying questions that we have to ask. Number one, what does this that I just say, what does this say or imply about God? And how I need to align. Does this say something about the greatness of God that I need to accept? Does this need to say something about the glory, the wonder of God that I need to be drawn into? Does this say something about the goodness of God that I need to see is good? Does this say something about the grace of God for my failures and weaknesses? What does it say about God? And then we ask the question, so how would I see myself and the life that's ahead of me today if I aligned myself with that part of God. And if I saw God in that way in my situation today. And then, what is the one thing I need to do today to show that I believe that? Is there somebody that I was a little sharp with yesterday that I need to say, you know, I'm sorry, yesterday I overreacted. Would you forgive me? Own it. Is there somebody who hurt you that you need to say, wow, uh, you know what? I need to forgive them and love them today. Those three questions lead to alignment prayer. Your kingdom come in me, your will be done in me, and then through me. Okay? Life-giving prayer is first realigning prayer. And then the second part of the prayer is simply, well, we think of it in terms of request, right? These are the things we ask God for. But when you understand this in light of the first part, what it really is is it's release, realign, 
and release. It's more powerful than just requesting from God. Life-giving prayer that operates out of rest in God is more than just asking God to do something for us or for others. Let me take you back to, well, to marriage. Every once in a while, my wife will ask me to do something. And I say, yep, I'm on it. You know what sometimes gets to me just a little bit? A little bit. I, I'm hurt. I'm offended when 20 minutes later she says, uh, I asked you to do that. Are you going to do it? I said, well, like, yeah. I, I said I was, right? She asked me, but what I feel is that she didn't fully trust me. She didn't release it to me. Life-giving prayer is prayer that takes all of life that's important to me, that is before me that day and says to God, you know, I'm entrusting this into your control today. One of the disciples who, who heard this teaching of Jesus on prayer, and, and he writes to us about it, 1 Peter chapter 4, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. That's the second part of this prayer. All of our cares, casting on it, releasing to him. Now, Full disclosure, the reason my wife asked me again is because it did happen on, on one occasion, maybe, <laughs> that, well, I may have forgotten, I may have got distracted, and didn't get to it yet, but that's not my God. If we look at what God says from the Word, and the psalmist says, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, that's the throne room view, then he moves to the Father view, he will not let your foot slip, he who watches over Israel, he who watches over you will not slumber, he will not sleep. Isaiah 40, do you not know, have you not heard the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of, right? He has not forgotten. Release it to him. Alignment that is true alignment will lead to releasing into God's hands, releasing control. Listen to something we worked through last month in the book of Philippians. See if you can see this Lord's Prayer uh, realignment and release thing in there. Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. I'll, I'll say it again. Rejoice. What's that? It's, it's a verbalization, a hallowing, a statement that I'm aligning myself with the God who's the great giver. The one who is on the throne, who is my father who knows my needs before I ask him, so I can rejoice in the Lord. And what does that lead to? Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Sounds an awful lot like living out of the rest of God, right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present. And that word present is not ask. It's make known your requests to God. Make them known to God. Talk to God about it. Don't demand. Make them known. Say, God, you know this is on my heart. I am releasing it to you with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what? Thanksgiving that we can trust he's got it because we've released it. By the way, that's how we know we've really released it to God if we can thank him that he's got it, right? And when we've released it, what's going to happen? The peace of God. Which, guards, which transcends all understanding. It's going to guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Now, friends, that is life-giving prayer. But it doesn't happen just all at once. It's a, what did we call it the other day? It's a practice, a practice. Sometimes we'll do it as a discipline, and one day we'll realize, hey, 
you know what? I, I didn't worry yesterday like I usually do. Somebody will say to us, hey, you look a little more relaxed. What happened? Right? It comes over time as we practice realignment and release. And what are to, rele we to release? Well, everything. Jesus mentions three core areas we'll release to God. Our, our daily provisions. Give us today our daily bread. Folks, we take a lot more credit for everything than we really should. Oh, yeah, we did the work, hard work. But who was it that opened the door for your job? Who was it that allowed you to be born in such a place that this job was open to you? Do you really think that all of the other per people who applied for the job, that you were the only one who could do it? Thank you, Jesus, that, that I have enough for today. Daily provision, daily pardon. Forgive us our sins. When we really see God for who He is, we'll tend to be overwhelmed with our failure, our inadequacy. Daily, multiple times daily, until we see the Lamb on the throne and we will come to Him for forgiveness. And how do we know we have done that with true thanksgiving? Jesus says it in there. By how well we forgive others. If you don't believe that's what Jesus is talking, just go to Matthew chapter 8, verses 21 to 25. Jesus fleshes this out there. Daily protection from wandering out of alignment with the God on the throne who is my Father. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You see, each one of us was born with a hurt in our heart, a, a bent towards something we inherit. As a matter of fact, evolutionist Richard Dawkins calls this the selfish gene, and he puts an evolutionary spin on it. But what it's talking about here is, is our selfish bent to lead us into trouble. In the beginning of time, God put two humans, his image, to represent him, to relate to him, to rule for him over everything. He put them in a perfect setting and said, everything is yours from me to take care of for me. So then one tree which you can't have, it's fruit. Everything, as far as the eye can see, everything, everything except one. And the evil one came along and distorted what God said and made them think that if they couldn't have everything, they couldn't have anything. Wow! You are trying to take your kid to the place he wanted to be most, and what he wanted right now is to go to the mall. And unless you could go to the mall, that's how we are with God. Is this not the main thing that keeps us from seeing the greatness and glory, the goodness and grace of the God on the throne who is our Father? The one thing that makes us fierce, fearful that base camp will expose or still not give us. If I have this one thing, until I have this one thing now, I don't want anything. That's not from God. Wrap it up. Life-giving prayer is essentially two things. Realignment and release. It doesn't have to be a 20-minute prayer time, but you can see how it can get there, right? You can do it in a few minutes, in a few life-giving minutes a day, simple and sincere. Realign and release. A number of years ago in the years that I was talking about earlier that when we began today, LaDonna and I were 
each individually in, in pretty high-stress periods of time. I went for a checkup with my family physician, and as a good physician, he was uh, concerned not just about my body. He knew about the mind-body connection, and, uh, and he also knew that what, about the things we were going through, and, and he probed into it a bit, and, and he responded to the way I answered him in a way that made me wonder if he thought I might be living in a bit of denial and so in his caring way, he offered a suggestion in the form of a question, right? He said, are, are you, have you ever considered using mindfulness techniques? I knew what he was thinking, and I knew that I wasn't doing exactly that. And so I said, well, yeah, sort of. He took my hesitance as a lack of awareness about mindfulness of, out of Eastern New Age practice stuff. And, and so he, he offered some suggestions and since he pushed into a little, I decided to clarify how I was practicing it. And I shared with him about daily realignment with God and His Word, the God on the throne who is our Father, and about releasing to the God who is our Father. And he said, wow, sounds to me like you have it under control. I didn't say it to him, but I said to myself, no, I don't think you heard me. I said, I released it to the God who's got it under control, realignment, and release, life-giving prayer. God bless you.